Listen up. Recording music with Bob Dylan, Neil Young, U2, R.E.M., the tragically hip Red Hot Chili Peppers, Tom Waits. This is an album-by-album account of my next guest's work with these iconic artists and others. He spent more than two decades recording, mixing, engineering, and producing some of my favorite albums and concerts. And he has just received the green light from uh, his doctors. So he's now cancer-free. Free. It is both an honor and a pleasure to welcome to the show Grammy Award-winning producer Mark Howard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming by. Oh, man. I, I just live right around the corner. I'm it's perfect. You do? Okay. Yeah. You could have come to your place. Yeah, you could have. And, uh, and, and hung out. But thank you so much. No worries. And um, I, I must say your, your birthday is coming up. Yep. June 8th. June 8th, yep. So uh, happy birthday. 55. Staying alive at 55. Um, listen, before, we, you, it's an amazing book. I just finished reading it. Great. Thank you. This, uh, this long weekend. Fascinating stories in there. Um, I think both for people who listen to the music that you've been around, but also for people that are in the industry and are engineers, right, yeah. producers, so that they can sort of understand the, the way you set things up in studio, the sort of equipment you used and why. Um, so I think it's fascinating for all these uh, all these okay. sorts of people yep. uh, to listen to. But as I said off the top, you, you the doctor is just sort of giving you the two thumbs up, the green light. Um, how are you feeling these days? I feel amazing. I, I think I feel better than I did before I had cancer. And so I'm pretty uh, full of energy. And, you know, I think sitting on a couch for a year and uh, writing this book and, you know, putting together a couple of concerts – you know, made me look at my life, and uh, I think it, it's just made me think that I'm just starting. You know, I'm, I'm now, I you know, I've got all this behind me. Now I can, you know, make the records I want to make, and I want to, you know, do the shows, produce shows now, uh, concerts that I want to put on uh, to bring awareness to the cancer that I had, which was melanoma. When did you first, like – realized that there was something wrong you went to go check things out like when was that a few years ago um i took my kids to hawaii we're in maui and um my one daughter saw this mole on my shoulder and she goes dad that looks kind of black you know that doesn't look normal and so she said you know go check it out and you know she's uh she's like 17 years old you know like saying you know you better go check it out and so uh i went to dermatologist and he saw it and uh, he cut it off right away and um well it was healing it's like took six wheel six weeks to heal and uh well that was healing these little black dots were going on are coming up around it and i asked the dermatologist i said this looks weird and he goes no it's just blood clots you know just kind of blood coming to the surface and then um so, but he said you need to find yourself uh, an oncologist, a cancer doctor, and mm-hmm. uh, just to kind of check it out. And so I did, and I got a cancer doctor. And um, sure enough, they did tests, and they said uh, you'd still have the cancer, and um, but we can put you on this um, clinical trial. In a clinical trial these days, it's uh, it was this thing called immune therapy, and it's kind of rev- uh, kind of new to the world of cancer and so it's been healing a lot of people but it doesn't work on everybody hmm. so it's like it was a it only works on 40% of the people hmm. 
So uh, so he suggested I go on this thing to, to heal it, but I had to do all these tests. And so while I was doing these tests and scans and they were doing blood checks and uh, all this, and so suddenly it took three weeks. And in that three weeks, this thing turned into a vicious monster. And wow. it was like on my shoulder. It looked like it was the size of a donut, a big, huge blood bag. It looked like an alien had taken over my body. Mm. And so... So I was like telling the dog, look, it's getting bigger, it's getting bigger, and I go next week, and it looks twice as big as last week, man. Like, and so they, uh, so they, they did all the tests, and I was ready to get on this trial, and then suddenly, boom, they come back and they say your BRAF is not acceptable for this, this, this treatment to put you on this clinical trial. So. Uh, so I'm freaking out. This thing is like a monster on my shoulder. And Are you in pain as well? Or no is it just pain. Well, it is kind of painful in a way. It just kind of feels, you know, it's it's throbbing, you know. It's like a, this big, huge uh, ball yeah, of yeah. blood, I guess. And so at, the, at that point, um, my sister, who lives up here in Canada, uh, her, her friend of hers was going through cancer, and uh, her husband – researched uh, where's the best doctor to kind of help her out uh, all over the world, you know. And they found this doctor up here called uh, Dr. Marcus Butler who works at the um, Princess Margaret Hospital. And he's head of the melanoma clinic and he of ends of the research uh, for melanoma. So um, she just happened to be seeing him the day uh, that my sister asked, her, asked about it. And she said, can you send a photo of it? And so I took a photo of it, and it was just, just, just it looks scary like this alien. And then um, showed it to the doctor that day, and Dr. Butler saw it, and he goes, you better get that guy up here right now. Wow. And so I got on a jet, and I flew in, and I saw him the next day. And he, he started me out on uh, this Class A drug, uh, which worked. It was working great, and it shrunk the whole tumor right down level on my shoulder and – so I thinking, wow, okay, let's, we're doing good, but this class A drug w started to wear off, and I had like crazy side effects, diarrhea, vomiting, you know, convulsions, like my body was shaking, and and so I end up in emergency, and they didn't know what to do with me because now I'm a cancer patient, and they're afraid to do anything and stuff like that. So um, so I ended up kind of stopping for a minute, and then so once it settled. He said, try it again, and then I tried it again, and then it worked for three weeks, and then after the three weeks, bang, diarrhea, convulsing, vomiting again, and so take a week off, let's try it again, and then send, so it was down to one week, and it was it ha was happening again, so, it's, so I stopped, and when I stopped, it started to grow back, and when it was grow back, it w went to my liver, ah. went to my spleen. And so I'm freaking out. So I call the doctor that I was with in L.A. And I said, you know, like, um, uh, you know, this, I told him what, it ha what was happening. He goes, well, now that you've done the Class A drug, you can come back here. And I can give you the immune therapy now, uh, like uh, through an, a clinical trial. And so I, I said, okay. So I jumped on a jet and I flew back to California. And I'm at the Beverly Hills Cancer Center. And uh, – so, you know, the thing has grown back. It's twice as big as it ever was. And so, because in Canada, they had to go through this 
uh, all these things to like it was going to take another month before they could treat me again. There's a step that they yeah it has to be through. done in these certain steps so they don't approve it and so it got kind of scary. So um, my doctor in L.A. said you know come here and I'll give you it tomorrow. You know you can jump on it right away. And so I did and so he said but we got to give you some scans before we do it because you know you've been scanned up there but we need to redo the scans because that's just protocol for to go on this trial you gotta like follow these certain steps right so i'm there ready to get the infusion for this uh, immune therapy and then uh, the nurse says the doctor just wants to talk to you for a second i said all right and i go in there and he goes i get some bad news i'm like what the insurance is not going to cover it like wh what's going on and he goes well it's spread to your brain and now that it's spread to your brain we can't put you on the uh, clinical trial because it's it's in your brain and now we have to do an emergency uh, kind of uh, brain radiation and so I'm freaking out and like oh my god and so they do it they see it they I do 10 treatments of this uh, radiation but at the same time he puts me on the immune therapy so what You're well on both yeah so I've, I'm doing both doing the radiation and I've got the injection but the clinical trial was uh, I was scared to do it in the beginning because they inject this stuff called TVAC into the tumor, and that TVAC uh, activates your immune system and say, hey, there's something over here. We better fight it. And so it's like, but the TVAC is, it's a herpes virus. I'm thinking, herpes? I don't want herpes, but I don't want to die. And so it's like, it's herpes or die, you know? <laughs> so, and, but the doctor explains it's, it's not like herpes that you're going to outbreak. Yeah. It's a genetic code that they took from the herpes virus and made made this kind of like TVAC uh, based on the herpes virus because, you know, herpes is a virus and your body's supposed to fight it and stuff like that. So that's they use that one uh, instead of something else, I guess. So sure enough, I get down there, bang, I can't do it. They give me the injection. I do the, the brain scan and then um, radiation. And then the doctor goes kind of vogue where the the trial they had um ready to in give me the tvac but because i couldn't go on the trial because it gone to my brain huh. they said well you're gonna have to throw that away and instead of throwing it away he took it and he wasn't supposed to but he injected it into me so i got like this dose of uh the tvac no in my shoulder in, oh, in, in your the shoulder. tumor okay. oh and, yeah, yeah and so bang it started to activate and you know within a week it started to grow smaller and so he I actually got one more injection of the TVAC from him before the um, before they wouldn't approve it anymore. So I got two two injections of the TVAC from him, and then I'm, so I'm on immune therapy. And so while I'm on the immune therapy, I get sick in the beginning. And what happened was is um, I got a stomach uh, um, uh, kind of virus. And so uh, my stomach was in pain, and mm. so I went in emergency, and I spent like a week in hospital uh, dealing with that, and I lost a lot of weight, and I was like down to 95 pounds and looked like a skeleton, and it was like, you know. But I'm living in Topanga Canyon on this ranch by myself out in the middle of nowhere, and I, it was just too dangerous to live there by myself, you know. Sure. If anything happened, I would be, you know, it would be kind of crazy. So ended up... Um, I came back to Canada and I got 
now I've had that treatment there, which means I could get it up here. <laughs> so now I'm on the immune therapy, and I've been on it for a year and a half, and the TVAC worked great. And then I thought um, maybe I could go, go back to the California, get more TVAC. And so they started doing these biopsies on me. And so they did a, a needle biopsy, and right away they, they, they saw, well, we're not seeing any cancer in your lymph node. That's weird, you know. And so they said, okay, we'll do a couple more. And they actually took right in the tumor and in my neck. I had needles poked right in my neck. And so they said, okay, well, we'll do a microscope test. And so that they did that, and the next day it showed there's no more cancer in, in the lymph node. And they go, wow, that's kind of crazy. But we'll do a punch biopsy, which it's with a punch a hole in, and take the skin around and check that. And so they did that, and hmm, no cancer. So, like, they're thinking, well, and then they do more scans, and they go, well, it's gone from your spleen now. It's gone from your liver. And, you know, like they do a brain scan, and they say, we just see a couple of la little specks now. And so they give me the green well light gone. saying, you know, so I went to Jamaica at Christmas with my kids, yeah. smoked a bunch of ganja, came <laughs> back, and they gave me the green light. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so Congratulations. Yeah, so, so yeah, so it's, it's good to be alive and good to be, you know, cancer-free. But I have to stay on this treatment for the full term just to um, – it's 95% for sure that it will not return yeah. if you do the full term. So I got six months left of every three weeks I got to go in for immune therapy shot. And it only takes half an hour of this drip, and and after that, I'm good to go. And how do you feel, both during and after, sort of uh, the injections? Yeah, yeah. I get a little tired. Okay. But um, you know, you know, uh, it's nothing like uh, chemotherapy or anything like that. Okay. Like I just, you know, a little, you know, I'll have a nap in the afternoon and I'll be fine. But you know, this is I'm supposed to go in two days to go get my next infusion, and so I'm. I'm, you know, doing a, my book signing tomorrow, book launch at the Horseshoe, and uh, I feel, you know, excited and full of energy and happy. That's amazing. That's yeah. really good. That's yeah. really good. <laughs> um, like I've probably said a million times, it's a fascinating book. And um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, I had a chance to um, interview somebody who um, who had worked with, and they still he still continues to work with uh, Daniel Lanois on some of uh, um, his digital stuff. Right. And, um, and, and I've always been interested in him because of the, some, of the, some of the albums that he's worked on um, and uh, uh, his band Black Dub, I think it's called, Black Dub. Um, Daniel Lanois' band. Yeah, Black Daniel, Daniel yeah. Lanois' band. Um, and he is a character, I guess, in your life plays a very very important role um how did he how did he find you daniel Lemoy? yeah um talk about that story. i was uh i was kind of like or how did you find each other <laughs> um yeah yeah it's so it all started um you know i i worked as a live sound technician and uh i traveled uh, you know toured all across canada and worked with king biscuit boy and all these blues bands and so uh, i'd been touring i was you know 20 21 year, years old at the time and and I came back from tour and I um, got in an accident on my motorcycle I was riding my 1971 Norton 750 and somebody hit me head-on and so uh, the bike creamed into the front of it and I went over the butt over the car 
And so I, when I landed, you know, like I hurt my back. And so I couldn't go back on the road because you got to lift up here and load it in. And so uh, I got a job at this little recording studio in Hamilton called Grand Avenue. And Daniel Amois had owned it before. And he made all the records with Brian Eno, all those ambient records in there. And you 2 had worked in there. And so it was, um, was kind of like it was his studio. But when I got in there, he had sold it to his best friend, Bob Deutsch. And so I was I got the job working at Grand Avenue, just making coffee, you know, because I couldn't really move. And so I just was making coffee and ended up because I had the technical background from mixing shows and gear and I could fix anything. I really I got a, like a, a little wizard in me that I can fix anything. Anything works for me. So uh, I fixed all their headphones at the studio and they were really impressed with me. And so within six months, I was, you know, the chief engineer there running all all of the the sessions and so they put me on this one session with this guy who I didn't know at the time called Daniel Lamois and he had just come from uh, Ireland making a record with U2 called Joshua Tree and so he was starting a record uh, his own record called Acadie at the time and so uh, I met him there and so he was always trying to like um, you know get me a, and say like okay we want to record a guitar right now and I want it on channel 12 and so he's expecting me that I have to run out there and set it up. And I go, it's there. I already plugged it into 12. And he goes, oh, really? And like, you know, like he's, he's trying to stump me, you know. So and then, you know, later on, I was like, OK, we're going to do a vocal. I said, OK, it's on 13 now. And so like he was like he was impressed with my ability to be fast and to be one step ahead of him. So uh, he calls me like, you know, maybe a month later and says, hey, I'm going to New Orleans to make a record with this band called the Neville Brothers. Would you be interested in coming and help me set up a studio and and uh, make this record with me? And I said, yep, I'm in. I really uh, – and so Bob Deutsch, who owned the studio, he said, if you leave uh, for six months, your job's not going to be here when you get back. I said, I'm willing to take that chance, you know, and so – Young guy, 20, he, 21 years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah, so in it's like, yeah. So in New Orleans? Yeah, so, you know, I arrive in New Orleans, and, you know, and Dan says that he's only here for a day, and then he's got to go to um, London to work with Brian Eno. And so, so he says, I want you to find a place to make the record, and, w- and you have to find a find a car, buy a car, get a bank account, and uh, you know, bring all the gear in from England, New York, and Canada, and have it all done in a month. And so, so I had to be a real estate agent, I had to be a banker, I had to be a shipping exporter and importer, and so all of these jobs that I'd never done before. And it was in the day I didn't have a computer; we just had a telephone. You know, it was like that was. That was my main communication device. And so I did it. And within a month, I found an amazing record to make the um, uh, amazing building to make the record in. And it was called Emma Court. It was a beautiful uh, five-story apartment building. And each floor was one apartment. And it was, like, incredible in there. So uh, I put the studio on the second floor. I put Dan on the penthouse at the top. That was his bedroom. And where where he would live, and then I lived in the studio in the back, one of the back bedrooms, and so, uh, so he came back after a month and he saw it and and he thought it was amazing. Like and so with the Neville brothers, there you know, I'd never heard of the Neville brothers before. You know, it was like a, I was pretty green to you know hip bands from New Orleans or whatever, but the Neville brothers were they're this amazing funk band and they're like you know really the Neville brothers are the meters. You know, like from, you know, because 
um, Cyril and uh, Art were in the meters, really. And so, but then it, with Aaron Neville in there, and then their younger brother Charles, um, that became the Neville brothers. And so, so it was really amazing to to see these guys live and to to hear this groove. You know, me coming from Canada, it's really straight up here. The drum beat, don't that, don't that, and you go down there and you just watch like Willie Green plays, and just like it feels like this amazing kind of like sexy groove. And so it actually made it harder for me to make records with everybody else because, like, everybody's so straight and stiff, you know, up here. And so to, you know, so bring that flavor. Um, so, yeah, so th th that's how it all started is, is working with him. And that led into another record as we were doing the um, the Yellow Moon record by the Neville Brothers. Bob Dylan came through town, and he asked uh, – uh, Bono had, had told Dylan that uh, he should consider – making a record with this guy, Daniel Lomois, who produced their records. And so uh, it kind of sunk in a little bit, but Bob was coming through town, and so his manager set up a meeting so that we would go see uh, Bob Dylan's show. And after the show, we got onto the bus back there, and Bob said, Dan, what are you, what are you guys doing here? And, and so Dan said, you know, we're making a record with the Neville Brothers, but we've recorded two of your songs on their record, one Hollis Brown and another one called God on Our Side. He's like, oh, what's that sound like? And Dan said, why don't you come to the studio tomorrow and have a listen? So Dylan comes to the studio the next day. I, you know, I sit him down in front of the console and I play him the tracks. I play Hall Hollis Brown first, and he just kind of shakes his head afterwards. And then after after that, I play him God on Our Side, which it's seven minutes long. You know, it's like it's a long track, but with Aaron Neville singing it, it was haunting. It was just like your hair on your arm would stand up. It was and so when, it, when that one finished, he goes, that was something I wasn't expecting. And so after that, Dan and Bob went in the kitchen, and then Dan walked him out, and then Dan came back in the studio and said, we're making a record with Bob Dylan. And so uh, that, you know, that was the record called Oh Mercy. And so a uh, funny story about that is we were only in New Orleans to make a record with the Neville Brothers, and then the idea was to move on, and we were going to go somewhere else. And so... Dan said, um, why don't we make Bob's record in Santa Fe, New Mexico? Because he had some friends there. His friend Darren lived there, and Santa Fe is a beautiful town. So he goes, um, I'll, you know, fly to fly to New Mexico and find a place. And So I go to New Mexico, and I'm scouting locations for Bob's record, and, and I find the Georgia O'Keeffe uh, home where she had lived. Beautiful, you know, the home, and it's like, it was made for making music. It was like it was gorgeous, and I filmed it on a video camera, and and so I went back and I said, "Wow, we've got George O'Keefe's place. She, you know, she died two years ago. It's been empty, and you know, it's like a, it's an amazing adobe building, and it's beautifully, you know, like this is peach color, and we just like had this like music written all over it. So I get back to New Orleans and I show Dan. He goes, "Wow, this looks amazing. Okay, so I'm so he says I'm gonna call Bob now, and so. He calls Bob, and you know, says, "Bob, we've found this beautiful location in Santa Fe, New, New Mexico, and you know this is where we're going to make your record." And Bob goes, "Santa Fe, I can't work there." And it's like, and Dan's like, "Why not?" He goes, "Because the altitude is like you can't sing it that high. He's like your breath, you get out of breath really fast." And it's like, 
like something we never considered, you know, but <laughs> because he toured a lot, he went through Santa Fe and he knew that those shows were hard to do because, you know, the altitude and you got to take a breath and you're always out of breath and it's, it's really hard. So, so Dan said, oh, all right, well, why don't we just make the record right here below sea level in New Orleans and, <laughs> and Bob loved New Orleans. So we, I ended up going scouting and finding this amazing Victorian mansion that I made. Uh, oh mercy! And so the question that I have for you is, um, you know, you you talk about you, you you listening to the Neville Brothers live, and you, you can see your excitement in terms of you know how awesome they are, and they are awesome live. Yeah. Um, and you coming from a live background, uh, first of all, I think that probably helps you with your efficiency in the studio. Yeah. As a musician myself, and knowing that the sooner right. you packed up, the sooner you got yep. on the road, exactly. The sooner you got to bed before yep. you woke up the next day. But h- how much did how much did the, that sort of live experience play into once you got into the studio? Um, it was, you know, because I was so used to having, you know, set up for the show, right? You know, like, yeah. we're going on at 8. So I kind of treated the studio like a live show. So whenever this musician uh, walked into the studio, or whenever Bob Dylan walked in or whoever it was, you know, my microphone is in record and I'm ready to record. And I'm even recording before they even know it. You know, so uh, I'm going to capture everything and I'm not going to lose anything. So I think by being ahead of everything, uh, it helps. So, you know, we'll, where Bob will just kind of go over the piano, play a piano uh, and sing along. And it's like, I'm recording. And, you know, it's like, it's like, what did I play? And oh, here it is. Play it back. And so a lot of ideas happen when you don't think you're recording. And uh, it's those magical moments are captured. And that's. That's the secret to the way I work. It would come across in the sound, too, yeah. I would assume, so yeah. capturing that live exactly. sound, but in the studio. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's kind of how I developed my sound, is by working with a lot of bands and uh, where everybody's all in the room together and just capturing the spirit. And yeah. a lot of vocals I've gotten, like on Time Out of Mind, there are live vocals right off the floor. Mm. You know, like that's... Something happens when you're singing with a band that it inspires the singer to sing a certain way. As soon as you take that away from him, you put him in a glass booth, you put headphones on him, his microphone, you can hear himself really clear in, in the ears, you know, you lose something. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of singers are great singers, and, you know, they, they can do it, but still, I still feel that there's nothing like singing with the band in this magical moment that happens when you all do it together and it's a it's a, it's a key to a lot of the records I made. You go from a studio in Hamilton to finding buildings, interesting buildings and homes. Um, what inf- like did you know that that's what you wanted to do, or were you looking for a studio you couldn't find it? So let me look for space. Like how did you get from a a, a pre made studio into let me build something in an available space? Um, well, it just it just happened naturally because Dan liked to work that way because he was working on his solo record. So in between making these records with his other people, we just go back to Dan's record and you know we would finish it off and kind of thing. So uh, the idea of doing it that way, there's no time limit. You don't have a studio clock. You know, it's like it's like you know you don't there from whatever you're living in the studio. You know, like it's, it's there. And, so with a lot of records I make, you know, I'll rent a big house, 10-bedroom house, and 
everybody's got their own bedroom and you live, sleep, and you work in this one space. And it does contribute to the, the making of that record. Ah. You talk early in the book about having to measure, and correct me if, if, I, if I'm getting some of the terminology incorrect, but you'd, you'd have to measure um, electric magnetic fields. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah? So this is something that you, that when you're considering a space to record in, like it could be an amazing space, like, wow, this is amazing. But when you're using uh, tube amplifiers and uh, guitars with single-coil pickups, they're they're prone to be picking up radio stations and all kinds of like <laughs> weird tax tech yeah taxis go by like shh, nah, 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 you know like get all these kind of weird sounds right so I never thought of that <laughs> so yeah so I developed this system for checking magnetic fields and it was as simple as getting a uh, um, acoustic guitar pickup and I would plug it into a uh, a battery powered little PV amp that I could hold. And I would just drag it across the floor and around the building and just hold it up to the windows. And so suddenly, if you hold it up to the window, it goes, you get this big hum. And it's like, okay, what's causing that? Oh, you look outside, and there's a big, huge transformer outside the window that's, you know, creating this huge hum. So it's like, okay, well, that location's not going to work. So it's like we're not going to get rid of that noise. And because we're using old tube microphones, a lot of tube, you know, guitar amps and stuff like that, so I think uh, you got to find the clear, cleanest spot. So the Neville Brothers record was in a location on St. Charles Avenue, and it had these streetcars that passed up and down, like on Streetcar Named Desire. They were the same kind of streetcars. And so they ran on electrical lines, you know, that went straight down the center of St. Charles. So the apartment building had all these glass windows that looked out over the boulevard. And sure enough, you go by the window and you get the hum. So I came up with a technique to fill the windows with lead. And I outlined, I had the, like rolls of lead and I rolled them in the window. And then I put this like rubber tech stuff over top of it and then plywood. And, and the buildings, you know, were, you know, mason and really thick. So no sound was going through the mason, but they were coming through the windows. So once I did this treatment, you know, you could go by the window and no hums, no buzzes. And so it, it was, uh, I, I managed to, to get away with it on that record, but other other buildings, you know, you'll you'll I'll be trolling this pickup across the pickup, and then you'll get I mean, you know, across the floor, and you'll get like a big buzz from a certain area in the floor. And it's usually like fluorescent lights underneath the ah. the next floor underneath, so you'll pick up buzzes. So you know, don't put the guitar there. Yeah, and so the only place I've ever worked where uh, there was no magnetic field was in Mexico when I rented this uh, cave in the middle of Cabo San Lucas. And, and you went to the cave. Rented a cave, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and so it was a guy who built his house uh, in the side of the mountain. So all the, all the walls were all natural rock, and then he built a palapa roof over it, and then plate glass windows that looked over the Sea of Cortez. It, it was kind of like a James Bond lair, kind of like or house kind of thing. And, and the pool kind of came into the house, and it was, it was a pretty cool place. And so uh, there, yeah, there was because there was no electricity and like uh, transformers around. Um, it was the quietest uh, we've had single coil pickup in tube amps, and so you could turn it up super loud, and you just get like the the um, you know of the of the amp itself. You know, usually because the other thing is like if you're 
when you play clubs, you get a lot of this. And so you got to find you can turn your guitar to the left, and it's like the hum is less on that side, and you fi- you just find the sweet spot, and you got to know where to hold your guitar, kind of thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's it's uh, and so that works in in certain rooms. Wow, and you l- I, I guess you learn something like that, w- especially when you're doing some. Uh, uh, the experience you have in, in live music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know what you need to look out exactly, for. Exactly, yeah. That's really interesting. Did you, did, you, did you did you get a chance to record in any big hall rooms? Like I think of the Trinity Sessions that um, Leslie Spit Trio did. Right, right yeah. Back in the day where yeah. it's just, you know, off the floor in a yeah, room like yeah, that. Yeah, well, um, I had a studio called the Teatro, which was uh, in mm-hmm. uh, just north of L.A., about an hour, in a little town called Oxnard. And so I rented this 1940s Mexican porn cinema, and so of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like 1,500 bucks a month, and it was a massive room with curtains all the way around. It had the stage, and it had the the, um, the screen was still there. It was a silver screen, like in the old days. And so uh, I got my assistant. I was making a record in San Francisco. I had the uh, temporary rig in San Francisco, making a record there, and. I sent my assistant down to Oxnard, and he tore out all the seats. And because he was a Canadian, uh, my friend Wayne the Brain, he uh, he built a big deck in the whole middle of the um, theater, and so that was where the studio lived. And so it was like a playground in there. We had grand pianos, organs, drum sets, you know. Like, and so my idea was it was a musical playground. So if you had an idea, you walk over to the piano and you play it. It's Mike. And I just, you know, enable that channel in your recording. So there's no setup. So it was an amazing kind of like place to make a records where, you know, because, you know, like people have all kinds of ideas, but you don't know until you try it. Or and so in other studios, you got to run out to the studio, record it then come back to the control room and listen. This way you're listening in this big room with the speakers on and you're able to try all different ideas and record it at the same time. Near the end of your book, I don't know if it's near the end, and correct me if I'm wrong, if it wasn't, um, Eddie Vedder he came in and recorded a, a couple of songs. He was doing a soundtrack as well. Was it him that you asked, hey, why don't you get Pearl Jam in here? And he said, this place is too nice. Yeah. Was it? Tell me about that. Okay, so that was uh, another installation I had in Los Angeles, and it was called The Paramore, and it was like a 1940s uh, movie star state. Uh, sorry, 1920s, um, and it was owned by this uh, guy, Antonio Marino. And Antonio Marino was the first Latin lover of the screen, and he was in a movie called The Sheik. And so Rudolph Valentino came after him. So he had married this woman, Daisy Canfield, and it was the Canfield Doheny's that discovered oil in L.A. So her parents built them this beautiful mansion, 22-bedroom mansion, the top of Silver Lake, four and a half acres, had, you know, sculptured kind of like uh, trees and bushes, and it had a big, huge marble-lined Olympic-sized pool, and the, the, it was really opulent, you know, like, and so I met this woman that that owned the place, and she she had cancer at the time. She was going into the hospital, but she used the, the house as uh, filming for filming movies, so in L.A., you're allowed to only film so many days a year on a residential place. Oh. So she'd already gone over her time, and she was needing to find another way to make money to, um, you know, 
you pay her. This is how the studio is kept in business. So yeah, you, you yeah. filmed at the studio. So I went up and I told her, look, I got five records I'm going to make, and can I ma- make them in your house? And she goes, uh, I'm going into hospital, so I'm going to take a chance with you. So sure enough, you know, I make these records, and so she gets out of hospital. She's, you know, beat the cancer, whatever, and so it it worked out so that I had this deal with her that I I ran my studio out of there. And then I ended up bringing Pierre Marchand, who was another producer friend of mine that works with Sarah McLaughlin, and he he made his studio in one of the wings. And then this other girl, Fiona Apple, she was working with this other producer. She was in the other wing. So and I'm making records in the big ballroom. It's got big chandeliers. You know, it's really I got couches and rugs, and it's like really you know like amazing in there. So um, we all worked in the house all at the same time making different records. I was working with a one woman called Lucinda Williams, and I made a record called World Without Tears with her there. So um, Sarah would work in the morning from 8 a.m. till noon. I would start at noon and work till 11 at night, and Fiona Apple would wake up at 11 at night and work till 7 in the morning. So we all never saw each other, and it was like amazing that we had, you know, everybody was there, but everybody was on different time schedules. So I think it was... Um, yeah, so the Paramore was w- one of these spaces that uh, that uh, I had taken over for at least four years. What What is it about well, – m- it's part the building, I'm guessing, part the locale, part uh, your treatment in there. I've, I've had so many things where, you know, you put carpets and Moroccan drapes, I think you call yep, them, yeah, yeah. all over the place and give it a feel. What is it about these spaces, these studios that you create that – uh, enables the musicians and the artists to really flourish. Um, I think it's because the un- the equipment doesn't intimidate them. If you walk into a big studio, you see all these knobs and all that. And it's intimidating to somebody that doesn't know what it does, and it's like all this stuff. It's like it's it's overload. So I create a space that's more of a musical space, and I, I call my little setup the horseshoe because I set up all my gear. It's in a horseshoe. I can touch everything. And I just make it, you know, cool. It's got, like, Indian um, tapestries wrapped around underneath the, the, the gearboxes and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's more of an um, interesting living space than, than a, a studio where you're kind of getting. So it takes their mind off of all this stuff and makes them help them with, uh, you know, creating their own music. Mm. Um. You've worked with so many artists, so many different people, and I wanted to talk about talk to you about a few of them. Okay. Um, first one I want to talk to you about is the Tragically Hip. Right. You produced their album Day for Night. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about working with arguably Canada's favorite band. Um, all right. So I met them on their Roadside Attraction tour. I was mixing show with Daniel Lamois, and so on that tour. Um, there was a a thing going on in British Columbia where they were tearing down the trees on the side of the mountains. And so Midnight Oil was on that tour. And so um, Peter Grant, who was the lead singer, he got involved in trying to, like, protest against these people cutting down the trees. And so as, as the tour got on, like, it came up, well, let's do a song... To, for a protest for these songs, so they came up with a song called "Land," 
And so each member, uh, I think there was Hot House Flowers, uh, Crash Vegas, um, uh, uh, Midnight Oil, Tragically Hip, and Lanois. And so each, each singer from all those bands did a verse. They wrote their own verse. And so we, so we went into a studio in Edmonton. And so I think while we were in the studio, um, the hip saw how I work. And so because I do work fast and get sounds like you never heard before. And so they were really impressed. Like, wow, this is just, how did this happen? Because, you know, usually they're struggling, you know, two weeks on a kick drum sound in the studio and, and stuff like that. So when they work with me, they just saw how, how fast and how amazing it sounded right away. And so, so that's how I got the invitation to make their record. And uh, so we ended up doing a little test in Kingston, and I went to their rehearsal studio, and um, I actually came up with a couple of treatments on for the drums on a song called Thugs and, and, uh, and a, uh, one song called Scared, I think. Two of those songs actually made the record from mm -hmm. the rehearsal that I kind of, or just this test recording I did with them. And so uh, they said, okay, great, let's let's make a record. And they were really excited. And so I said, let's go to New Orleans and make it at Kingsway at this mansion that we, we got there. And so they'd already made one record there before with a guy called, um, uh, oh, God, I've forgotten his name now. But it was another producer that they had at the time. And so uh, so we went back to n New Orleans. I brought him down to New Orleans, and we, we cut the whole record down there. And so, you know, uh, with with Johnny, uh, I kind of introduced him to some of these grooves and stuff like that. And then I brought in this other drummer, Brian Blade, who's like a big jazz cat. And so I got them to play drums together. And so Brian, so Johnny could feel, hit the other guy's feel and kind of like soak up his thing and put it into kind of mm. his own blend. So, so yeah, so I thought it was interesting. And But the weird thing about making the record was... They were really adamant about the way they wanted to record. They didn't want to wear the songs out. So they wanted to perform the whole record every day. And so they would play all the songs in sequence uh, that, like they would do for a live show. You know, Normally you work on one song and you record it a couple of times and you find the best take and that's the one. But they thought by doing that they might lose the charm of it and they wanted to capture it fresh, live, and capture it, you know, bang. So I thought, okay, great, let's do it. And so I'm in there, we're there for two weeks, and I feel like I don't have one take under my belt, and, mm -hmm. and I get scared. And so I like, what do I do? Like, how do, like, what, you know, I, I, you know, I got good parts. It's like, you know, from the other day, we had an amazing intro, and then last night, man, we got this amazing chorus and, and stuff like that, but we didn't have, like, one solid take that... I felt that we could use for the record, you know? And so uh, I ended up um, getting up early in the morning and going through all of the takes from all the week's work and then cutting, like, this is the best verse and this is the best chorus from this night. And so I would cut it together, and then the band would come in at noon, and i say, check out this last take from last night. And so I would play my <laughs> edit, and so they go, wow, let's use that one. That one's great. Because like... So I never really told them. <laughs> They're just going to find out now. Now they know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. Well, it's funny because I was going to ask because you're so efficient. Like, you know, that's one time. Is there a time where it really went off the rails? Because, I mean, not suggesting that was off the rails, but where a band, you just, you just couldn't work with them or they just couldn't work with you. And they don't have to name names or anything, but just. 
I've never, uh, not really. No, I, I don't think it's ever gotten to that. You know, you always butt heads somewhere along the lines. But you know, like one record, the guy said, "You can't get me a guitar sound," and I'm like, "It doesn't come from me." You know, like you're the guitar sound. Like I'm just recording you. Like he's like, "No," and he's calling all these people, and you got to do this and you got to do that, and he's telling me how to record. And so I said, "Well, let's let's do a little test." And so I was. This is, was in San Francisco. I had this warehouse I was making records in, and so uh, I was friends with Billy Gibbons, the gu guitar player from ZZ Top. And he just happened to be in town picking up this hot rod that he just had finished painting. And so I said, Billy, can you come to the studio tonight? I want to see the car. And so he drives it into the city and comes in and pulls in this like 1930s coupe Ford, you know, like hot rod, and it's like purple. It's like it's amazing. And so uh, so I invite him up to the studio, and we go up there. I said, Billy, you know, we're having a problem with the sound on our rig. Maybe you can help work it out. And he goes, well, you got a 50-watt uh, Marshall head here and 100. I suggest you use the 50. The 50's, 50 plexi is, is the one that you want. Hendrix used the 50-watt. And I said, okay, great. And, and I said, what about the cabinet? He goes, yeah, the cabinet's fine. And so we did a little test, and he plugged it in, and plays his riff and bang 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 and, and we play it back and wow it sounds amazing right and then so ian who I was working with at the time he was a guitar player and he plugs into the s same guitar same amp same head everything bang he plays it and it sounds like shit and so we're like billy what are you doing he goes it's in the touch and so <laughs> light touch the way you strum it it's it's a sound it's you develop your own sound the way way it happens so it's and it's the same with drums you know like you could have a drum set it can sound amazing on this drummer and then another drummer can come sit behind it and it sounds terrible and so it's about feel touch and 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 you know you know how you how you do it so uh it was just kind of i was kind of cocky in those days so <laughs> like <laughs> see it's not me <laughs> what, it, it's interesting you say that because there's you know certain drummers certain guitarists um, that have a sound like you yeah. even if you you don't recognize the song you could hear it and you go you know that that sounds like edge from you too right or that's definitely neil young you can hear the feedback or the sort of that 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 sound or you hear something you say i, I don't know but you know that sounds like john bonham right you know on, on the drums what is it is is that the artist is that the equipment is that the engineer what is it about these sounds these these signature sounds that we um that we hear and we sort of say okay that that's so-and-so sound where does that come from well as i've always said the sound comes from the source so um if you got to go and spend four days on a kick drum sound there's something wrong you're not using the right drum you're not using right you know microphones or whatever but usually it comes from you know you got a les paul from the 50s and you plug it into a tweed deluxe and you use a 409 microphone on it that's a killer combination neil young uses that one i've used it for a while and so you use combinations of certain things like the 50 watt head with the marshall cabinet and you know with the, the this year's stratocaster that's a combination so those things are tried and true, and you cannot fail them. So as long as you you know these kind of little techniques and whatever, th those those are what I call the sound comes from the source. 
And so by by me, I, I'm a guerrilla recorder. And, you know, sometimes you don't have time. There's no time to get sounds. I just plug in the microphone, turn the, mi the mic pre, make sure it's not distorting, bang, and I'm printing. And so that's, you know, like guerrilla style where, you know, I'm you're capturing a performance than a sound kind of thing. But if you get both at the same time, then you're you're lucky. You're like, you know, like Keith Richards' tone, you know, like you might only get it, uh, you know, from this one guitar that he played one time, and that's the sound of, you know, that track and stuff like that. So, yeah, so I think, you know, drums have certain sounds. S some drum sets, you know, you have play them one day, they sound amazing, and then you come back in the next day and they don't sound good. And so it depends on the song and how hard they play. But I have noticed uh, uh, with with uh, with the touch of like bass players, Pino Palomino is like an amazing bass player, and his whole thing is about soft touch. The way he just kind of brushes the strings with his fingers, it's like this, you know. But you know, other bass players are like clack clack clack. They're like, you know, the harder you hit it, the smaller the sound, and and the harder the it it doesn't it sounds like you know. And so um, so with guitar sounds, the same thing. Sometimes smaller amps sound bigger than bigger amps. Like, uh, yeah, small amp would sound bigger than, like, a Marshall stack. And so on the Tragically Hip record, um, I ended up using uh, these little cigarette amps. They look like cigarette boxes, but they got a little speaker in them. And you just jack it into them, and they're distorted. And so it was a song called, uh, a song called So Hard Done By. Mm -hmm. And so the guitar sounds are, like, really kind of toothy. Eh, eh, eh. And so it's yeah, a, it's, it's this little right. little tiny guitar um, cigarette box. So sound comes from the source. So so uh, going further to that in terms of like when musicians start to get experimental with sounds or or not sounds necessarily but instruments or yeah. you know and it's something that's not the perfect setup. Like I think of. Uh, you guys read out Chili Peppers Breaking the Girl and they were playing that on like a kid's piano. Yeah. Like yeah. just on a little kid's piano. Exactly, so, yeah. I mean, how, how like what what bands or what, what um, how have you worked with that kind of? Uh, yeah, kind of we use toy pianos. I use kids, little kids drum sets that you get from, you know, Toys R Us and they just sound amazing. And sometimes when you're, like you listen to it in the room, you go, oh, sounds awful, but you hear the playback, and then the way I mic it is like it just punches you in the chest, and it's like, wow, we weren't expecting that, you know. So uh, yeah, sometimes little sounds or you know weirder instruments, you know, uh, while you're experimenting, you know, can be key to the song. And I, I, I do love how that the, you know that can add something to the song, where as as the listener, you're like, what is that? Yeah, like you, you know it's something, but you're not quite sure what it is. And right. It wasn't until I saw the documentary of that uh, and Blood Sugar Sucks Magic, I think exactly, it was, yeah, that I realized, oh shit, that's how they got that sound. Yeah, yeah. And you know, um, I got a lot of my training and not training, but kind of like the way I manipulate sounds through Brian Eno, because Brian, you know, he created this thing called ambient music, and so I kind of learned from him to to be able to. If you take a piano sound and you run that piano through a reverb, and that reverb goes into like a an echo, but then you take that echo and feed the echo back into itself, and it starts to feed back. And you take out the original piano sound. So now suddenly you've got this whole ambient kind of texture of sound that has nothing to do with the original piano and doesn't sound like a piano. It's just like this wash, beautiful wash. And like so, s sometimes I'll I'll do treatments on people's 
records that way where I'll treat certain s things where I'll lift the original signal signal out and you're only hearing the effects uh, kind of coming back. So uh, I think sometimes when you're experimenting uh, that way, uh, it just gives the song a vibe and creates this thing and you build on top of it. There's a lot of that in, in uh, Lenoise, Neil Young's um, Yeah, that's, uh, I, you know, when I made that record, I thought, Neil's already made every great guitar sound there is, you know, and for me to come up with a new sound for him, I think that it was it was it was groundbreaking for me, anyways. You know, because I, I was using um, uh, this uh, uh, sub harmonizer at the time, and so he would play this acoustic guitar, and I would turn the sub harmonizer on his guitar, and it sounds like there's a like sub bass player playing along with him, and so he's like, "Wow, that sounds exciting!" And like you know, like this cool acoustic sound. So there's a song called "Love and War," and every time he hits that low string, boom, it's got this subsonic quality to it. And so uh, he, he brought his uh, guitar called Blackie, uh, which it's an yeah. old old Les Paul gold top that he's painted black, and it's got Firebird pickups in it, and it's kind of tricked out. And so he said he, he always brings it with him. So he goes, let me try this next song with Blackie, and we'll see how it works. And so he plugs it in, bang. And so I've still got this sub-harmonizer left on from the last track on the acoustic. And so as soon as he turns it on, and then he strums it, it goes, and the whole house just shakes like thunder. And he's just, this big smile comes up on his face, and he's got this, like, massive sound. It's like, wow, this is, he never got a sound like that, never heard his guitar sound like that before with that kind of thunder underneath of it. And so that's, you know, Walk With Me and, and those tracks. And so uh, I think, you know, by creating a sound for him, he was, like, uh, super excited and I did it on a bunch of different tracks on that record where he had another um, guitar called um, uh, White Falcon. And it was like an old kind of uh, a Gretsch guitar. and had a, It was a stereo pickup out of, out of it. So when you think of a stereo pickup or a stereo sound, you think left and right, and you know, like the sound is split. But the way they made this pickup was is the first three strings on top came out of one pickup, and the bottom three strings came out of the other pickup. And oh. so I would put them both into two different amps and pan them hard left and right. And the way he plays it, so it's... So you get this kind of cool effect kind of going left and right in the speakers. And so uh, so I had like this cool, um, this kind of flange effect on it. So it gave it this kind of like swimming effect in the headphones. So I think he really dug kind of how psychedelic it felt. It's almost like now when I listen to music and, you know, before I read your book, but it, it sort of made me more aware. I'll listen to songs and I go, can I hear sort of that that depth or that texture in the song, right? Because you hear all the instruments, but then it's almost that, that ambient noise. Yeah. If it's missing it, it almost sounds flat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting. You could hear that. You could hear that in the compression of from from an album to MP3s. I mean, I remember yeah. I remember sitting my sons down because I had the dual. I, I took it down to Bay Bluer and got it all ready. Well, it's only like two years ago. My kids are in their early twenties, and I sat them down. I put on uh, Level Forty Two of Physical Presence. Okay, yeah. And 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 my boys were just like, "What are we experiencing?" Like it was just you know, right? Yeah, like night and day. And and I mean, I wanted to sort of explore that with you as well. Is like you know, we're, we're compressing and compressing and compressing 
for distribution on mass yeah. distribution on these devices. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Like, uh, like I'm anti. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I've gone anti-compression. I, I don't like compressors, and I, I you know it it kind of like makes the sound you know dense, especially for mixes. You know, like when you go to mastering and they just super compress it, so it blows your mix out. You know, because you know why the way I mix it's it's depth of field. So I'll have like uh, a tambourine way in the background, but then I'll have something really up in your face and then something on, on the right. So like there's a depth to the mix that you can actually put your hand into it and feel something's over here, something's, you know, uh, like just kind of like right there and touching your ear kind of thing. So, but once you compress it, it pulls all that information to the front. So now everything is level. So the tambourine is as loud as the guitar is this. And so that's just ruined my mix, you know. And so that's this the the idea of you know compressing these things to make them hotter to put on CDs, you know, was was kind of a bit of a gimmick there in the late '90s, and you know, and then carried into the 2000s. But um, so yeah, so I would never compress my mixes, or you know, I always considered I'm the human compressor, and so I would you know ride the vocals. Bring in when it's quiet, I make it really loud, and when it's loud, I bring it back. And so, I would ride the actual fight fader volume. Where these days, people don't know about that stuff. They just put a compressor on the vocal, and that's 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 it. You know, they just turn it up, compress it, and that's as loud as it's going to get. And if it's quiet, it will go up, and if it's loud, it will go down. And so, uh, a lot of records are made that these days. And so, I don't play those games and. I like the the vocal to breathe. I you know, like to you hear the breaths in it, and just you know, in my mixes too. So, and I don't m I don't record with any compression on anything. You know, guitar amps are naturally compressed themselves. You know, because they're when they're loud and distorted, it, it's just a natural kind of compression. So uh, that's my favorite kind of compression is when it naturally happens. So yeah, so compression is, you know, it's 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 the modern man's crutch. You know, like it doesn't know how to you know record properly <laughs> so, and that just sort of makes the file smaller when you compress it it makes the file smaller so that you can store more is that what's happening it's 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 bringing information that's loud down bringing it to so it doesn't go louder and then it brings information that's quiet brings it up so it's at the same level so in other words you're having a very linear sound you know it's like it's all compressed linear so it's this one strip where my mixes they they get loud in this section and quiet over here and you know so they they breathe you and they see that eh? when we're bringing s music into uh into the final you know if, if we were to add a song here and you pull out a digital recording of a song and you notice why is it all flat you know why like why is it mm -hmm. all one level yeah when you when you 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 think of the song and you go no there's like waves in that song why is it all Flat, and that's like I guess that's the that's yeah, that's, that's, that's that's what we're hearing. Exactly. So, what are your, your 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 thoughts then with what Neil is is doing? Um, you know, he, it's it's not po uh, Pono anymore. It's it's is it like extreme. Yeah, yeah, it's called or what is it called? It's called extreme. Like I know he's got his own like it's in the right. Neil Young archives now. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't have the device, but sort of his his whole idea right. of the the way the master sound is what he wants. Yeah, you know, all recording to sound. What do you what are your th you you must love that sort of stuff. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I do like it, but unfortunately, uh, the youth doesn't care about it. Like young kids, they don't, they don't give a crap about quality. 
and whether you know it's a whether it's an MP3 or you know they don't care. They just like their song and that's what it is. And and so like as you know Neil went all the way and you know converted all of his masters to 192 and you know like those he put this movie out and somehow the audiences wasn't recorded at 192. So he had to bring the audience back in and re-record the audience at 192 because he was like adamant that it had to be at this high sample rate. But, you know, as it goes, you know, like, you know, I'm I'm of the opinion if it sounds good, it sounds good. If it's a cassette and it sounds amazing, it's amazing. And if it's, you know, MP3 and you just got a cool sound going on, it's it's a great sound. So... I don't really care, you know, about whether it's high resolution or whatever, I as long as it sounds good, you know, if it's got beautiful, warm bottom, punchy, and it, it carries through. Because sometimes when, if it's too high definition, uh, like when you look at these new television screens, it's like too freaky looking, you know? It's like, and same happens with music. It's like the clarity is just, it's almost harsh to listen to because mm -hmm. now suddenly it's so bright and it's so clear, and they've kind of like, you know, made it this, you know, uh, it's like taking an old movie and turning it into like a soap opera, like super clear and super, you know. So I, 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 I get that vibe from it. So I'm, I'm not playing into whether it's high, freak, um, you know, resolution or not. So as long as, you know, it comes to... character in this sound, yeah, you could feel... it comes down to like the way it sounds to me, so yeah. sometimes uh, I don't care if it's a low-res recording or high, as if, you know, you're going to get this beautiful sound, it's a beautiful sound. Yeah, there, There's a story in, in your book, I, I think it's Bob Dylan, um, but you, you, you make a recording, and I can't remember if it's on CD or if it was on cassette... And you'd listen to it, so you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. You hear it, and then you, you'd give it to you'd give it to Bob, and he'd listen to it. Hey, it doesn't sound good. It's missing this, or, yeah. and you'd listen. No, it's there, but what are you listening to it on? Well, tell tell me about that 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 story. So we were mastering uh, his record called "Time Out of Mind," and so I, at the time, you know, there there was CDs, but I would make uh, cassettes, and I had these. It was Maxell XL Two S was like the hot printing cassette in those days and that was like you know the, the favorite to put all your mixes on so and i would just bury the needles you know like just ma make them really loud and when you put them on they sounded really exciting so uh so once you mastered it and you put it on a cd and then he would listen to the cd and then reference the cassette and the cassette was like wow it sounds more exciting it's hissy but it sounds exciting and it's kind of like this whole thing so we went through all these different ways to kind of make it sound like this cassette and ended up, um, I just brought the cassette machine into the mastering <laughs> and mastered from this Tascam cassette machine. So it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, you know, mastering is supposed to, you know, uh, make it sound better, but sometimes it doesn't and it just makes it too, you know, people compress too much or make it too bright and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, mastering is for people that don't know how to mix. And so when, when they get my mixes, I cut them flat. And so I don't like them to do too much to them and, and just, you know, bring up the level a little bit. Don't compress it. And, and that's the way we like it to sound. Yeah. So. In, um, you, you, we talked a little bit about uh, you, you making Day for Night for the Tragical Hip. And I read in, um, in Michael Barclay's book, 
the never-ending present that you were scared that the hip or the, the fans would hate. Well, the, the record company hated the record. The record company, yeah. Yeah, so we, you know, we finished the record. We all liked it, and it was, you know, they loved all the mixes and everything. But, uh, I, you know, when it was time, we sent the MCA the, the copy of the record, and we're like, what is this? This is like, this doesn't sound like your other records. You know, this is... This is a dark record. This is kind of creepy. Like, you know, what have you done to these guys? And like, I thought, oh, my God, I've ruined their career. <laughs> this is it. I like, you know, uh, yeah, I thought I'd ruin the tragically hip and, you know, like, like nobody's going to like it. And, you know, I think originally people l- would listen to it and go, what is this? Is like this don't sound like them. Like, you know, and so uh, eventually, you know, you know, over the years, it's become people's favorite record, and and so uh, Gore Downey liked it too. Gore, you had yeah, to wait for him to tell you before. Yeah, you yeah, he, he cornered me one day, and he goes, "You know, that's the only record I like to listen to." And you know, <laughs> so I'm like, "Wow, thanks, man." <laughs> so, are there any um, albums that you've made where I don't know, like the feedback from the artist didn't matter to you, or it mattered so much that you needed it? I'm really curious uh, about that because you know you could. You can enjoy it, but then again, you're you're making something for someone, and you want to right. be able to fulfill, I guess, their vision of, of yeah. what they wanted to make. Um, is there anything that you've done that you really loved, but maybe the artist didn't dig it as much? Um, not doesn't come to mind that that you know every record I've made, they, you know, just we just have a general rule that we're making this record for ourselves. And we're not we, we don't care what anybody thinks about it because we like it and this is what the, we've made and we're proud of it. So it can go to anybody and peop- some people will love it and some people will hate it. So you just can't really you know take everybody's opinion you know too you know too much you yeah. know grain of salt. So uh, yeah, so I think it's 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 uh, it's you know Bob Dylan said you know d- never he never reads the critics of, of his records and stuff like that. So yeah, th- it's a it's a pretty crazy thing to to be dealing with. So, do you have a favorite record or recording that you've been a part of? Um, do I have a favorite? Uh, well, I think Dylan's "Time Out of Mind" record. Although I was very embarrassed about it in the beginning. Why is that? Um, because we started the record in Oxnard, California, in the theater. And Dylan, we got this killer sound going on. And then suddenly Dylan goes, well, I can't make my record here. Uh, we got to go somewhere else. I'm too close to the family. And I just need to, like, get away and be as far away as possible. And so the idea came up that we would go to Miami. So I put all the gear in the truck and a couple of motorcycles, and I drove to Miami. And I got to Miami, and we were in this big, spitty room. It didn't sound good. And uh, it, it was like uh, I thought – we were going backwards and sound wise, and so ended up, you know, a lot of s- strange things happened on the record. But ended up, uh, we back at the Teatro, and I kind of mixed some of the tracks, and some of the tracks from Miami went on the record, like uh, because we were working in a big studio and it had a control room, and so th- once the band had done a couple of takes, they come in and we'd listen to all three takes, and so. Um, 
I do these things called performance mixes, and I try to hype, make it sound better than you know what it is, and kind of like as 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 the band's listening, I'm performing a mix at the same time and printing it. So there was a song called "Love Sick" on on that record, and you know while they're out there, I'm t dialing in some sounds, and I put like a flanger on Bob's voice, and there's with this weird echo, and so when the band comes in, you know they hear this. Um, uh, this kind of like wild vocal sound and and so like they're like wow this sounds crazy crazy you know so uh, so that mix I could never better it it just it was a performance I did at that time and I printed it and so it went that went on the record just like that. I need to come back to Daniel Lanois. I started reading the book. He sounds like oh here's a great person to work with and throughout your story, he comes off as the biggest jerk. <laughs> well, how are you and Daniel? Today? Um, it's a, it's a complicated relationship, and so you know it's he's uh, he's a very demanding person to work for, and he wants perfection all the time, and uh, and it's it's you know it's hard to deliver it twenty four seven, and so you know I worked for him for quite a few years on all those records, and I I pretty much got like I, he never once asked me. To like you know make this sound like this or whatever, I just dialed it in the way I do it, and everybody was always happy. So uh, that part of it was great, but you know he would have you know some tantrums in the studio, and it, some of it you know was my fault, and some of it wasn't. And so you know like on time out of uh, sorry on the Oh Mercy record with Bob Dylan, um, you know Bob was kind of like strumming sloppily and just kind of act and you know given Dan this attitude and Dan lost his mind on him and smashed this dobro over his floor wedge monitor and so Bob went white and it was just like you know this scary moment like you know so I ran I walked out of the studio and let them talk it out and so yeah so <laughs> crazy stuff would happen like that so he's an intense character yeah. he's an amazing you know musician and he's got a lot of talent but he's got you know some issues with he can get overexcited and and you know he'll talk his mind you know without thinking about it and so I think um, so, you know some of the times you know he'd be screaming at me like what the heck did you do you know like and so it happened on the Time Out of Mind record where uh, I accidentally recorded over an intro of one of the takes and so you know we came in listened to three takes and. Uh, uh, no, that's not it. And so we'll go out and do three more takes. And so I hit the machine to locate. And so um, it, the machine locates. And then uh, they go out there and I punch in the record. And then I look over and that's the same number. I was like, oh, shit, stop the machine. I had erased just kind of like the just the tip of one of the takes. And so um, what happens is with uh, analog tape, they're, once it's gone, it's gone. It's gone. And so There's no undo. The, there is no undo. <laughs> and so I thought, well, it's, it's okay. They'll, you know, that's not the take, you know. And so they go out and do three more takes, and we listen to them. And uh, we come back, and then Bob goes, why don't you play that take two from the earlier set? And I said, okay. And so I, you know, line it up, and then I have the fader down, and I just kind of fade it up as at the beginning. And so I thought, okay. And so they listen to it. I kind of sneak it by him so they don't hear that's not there. And so then um, Dan says, uh, let's play the whole intro. Let me hear it. 
And so I play. Can't wait. You know, like it's 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 gone. And so he flips out and grabs a stool, picks it up, and throws it at me. I just duck out of the way. It smashes into the wall, smashes all the light dimmers in the control room, and you know, it's like you know, swearing at me. How could you do this? Like, you, why are you paying attention? Blah blah blah. And so, you know, accidents happen. The machine located to that take two and didn't go to clear tape. You know, so the the locate button located to the the take before or whatever. And so I wasn't on clean clean tape, but I caught it early. So it just cut the tip, and so. He started screaming, and I said, okay, everybody out of control room. And uh, and so I just took you – know, we would name takes. So one take was called the rag doll, and the next take was called, you know, the Pink Floyd version, and another one was, you know. So they all had these different kind of names that we could always, you know, reference them instead of the tick, tick, to, you know, let's hear the rag doll one or whatever. So it was the rag doll one that they liked, and so then I cut the Pink Floyd ver- first verse opening uh, – uh, piece onto that take, and uh, and then Bob just turns to me, and goes, "I like it better," and so it was like an accident that was kind of like saving grace. So it's like a, but Dan had lost his mind and thought it was ruined, and and so, and the funny thing about it was, you know, Bob's reaction, you know, like when he threw the stool and it smashed, and you know, Bob turned to me and goes. What is this guy, a mental case or something? <laughs> you know, like, I go, yeah, I think he is. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, Dan's a sweetheart, and I I, you know, I love him to death, and he's just, you know, he's just very passionate, and he doesn't like mistakes, and he's got to have everything, you know, his way fast. And, and that's why I probably work the way I do, because I've been, you know, tortured, not tortured, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, made to work that way all these years, and, it just makes me work faster and easier. So, uh, but I think it's it's uh, definitely um, a crazy moment. Was it hard going from you know being the recorder and the mixer to when you, when you guys sort of split up at that point to you know controlling the whole thing, being a producer as well? Was there any hesitancy? You know, was it nervous? Was it like no, I'm doing this? Where were you mentally at that stage? Um, I think I was ready. Uh, this was, you know, it had been way overdue that I, I, I was time for me to move on. You know, I'd been producing records, you know, all along anyways. And so, like, I had this deal with Dan that um, I would supply locations and he would supply the gear. And he would take six months at the time and I would do six months with my records. And so I'd produce Marianne Faithful and this guy Chris Whitley. And so in my time, and then Dan would kind of bring in you 2 and Willie Nelson and... So, so we had this balance for the teatro, and so um, and in San Francisco also. So I think um, that worked for a while until you know Dan used up a whole year, and you know I I had to like make records and pay for the you know I had to pay all the bills, and so at one point you know I was only working for him, so I wasn't making the kind of money to to cover my overhead because you know the electrical bill you know was you know huge. Couple, yeah, it was huge, and it was like it was, you know, this is a massive place, and it was a lot to to pay for a month, and you know. And then I had, I got married, and I had a kid, and I had another home, and I, so I was paying like two rents, and I'm paying, you know. So it's it's so when it came down to it, he you know he brought you know you two in there, and we did the Willie Nelson record and a film, and um and so he he ate up 
all my time too. And so at the end of that, I said, Dan, look, you know, I, I can't afford to make my bills. Like, can you give me a hand, you know, to pay, f pay for uh, some stuff because you used all the time this year? And he goes, no. I mean, what do you mean no? Like, you know, can't just loan me like five grand or something? Like, no. He goes, he goes, you know, you'll figure it out. Go sell one of your bikes. And I'm like, damn, okay. I said, I guess that's the end. We're closing the door. And so that's kind of how it shut down at one point. So, uh, and it wasn't, it was like 10 years that I never worked with him again. And then 10 years later, he invited me to come make the Neil Young record. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, it came around. And so now we're, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, like a marriage, that, you know, you're <laughs> we're slightly divorced right now. <laughs> uh, Bob Dylan, he wanted to record and mix at night. Yep. Uh, Neil Young. Uh, three days before the full moon. Three days. And not three days after. It was, it was three days three before. Three days before, yeah. Three days before a full moon. Um, did you ever, f did, like, did you ever ask them or have conversations on? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, with with Neil, he claims that you're not going to do any better work than three days before the full moon. That's when you're at your peak, you're most creative. So why work any other time when when that's when you're, you know, the moon's in the right spot and you're, the energy is there and it's right. And so if it's going to happen, it's going to happen then, right then before the full moon. And so, uh, and Bob, he's of the opinion that things need to be done at night because it's kind of like a, it's a slower tempo and it's a slower kind of mood at night. And so things kind of like generally kind of feel better at night than recording in, in the bright daytime and stuff like that. So were there any other artists that had other quirks about when? Yeah, no Iggy Pop was he had a 12 hour rule that you weren't allowed to go in the studio unless uh, you had 12 hours off. So if you finished at midnight, you couldn't start the next day until noon. So at Kingsway, you know, the studio was kind of part of the living room and that thing. So if Iggy came down the stairs and he saw me in the studio, he goes, Mark, what are you doing? Get out of there. And, like, I'm just, you know, getting. Could be anybody, whether yeah. you're mixing. Like you weren't even allowed to. No, no. Everybody had to ha get, not listen to any music for 12 hours in this 12-hour stretch. And that was his thing. So it was, uh, so was kind of bizarre. And so, yeah, so everybody's got their own kind of work ethic and, you know, and Tom Waits. Tom Waits only wants to work the uh, bank hours, you know, nine to five. You know, then so he's got a family. He goes home and, you know, we just work during the week and the weekends he goes and works, uh, you know, uh, with his son's baseball team and stuff like that. So so it's kind of a, a weird thing, you know. That's so interesting. Um, music has changed since you started. <laughs> To now, yeah, you just, yeah, drastically. You know, um, you know, as, as, as I'm reading, you know, you got Daniel Lanois. Okay, go find a place, open a bank account, go get stuff. And I'm thinking, where the heck does all this money come from? Um, and then it comes to Lanois, and um, it's like Daniel Lanois going, "Hey, all these expenses," and the record company says, "No, it's a, you know, we're not we're not paying you what you thought." You would make twenty years ago. This is this is the new time. Yeah. Um, your thoughts on all of these changes? You know, people can sit in their living room with a computer uh, and have a band at their fingertips and yeah. and and create music. Um, what what are your thoughts on on what on where music is today? Whether it's 
you know, the recording of it, which is, you know, your specialty or whether it's, you know, distribution or how artists make money. What what are your thoughts on where we are today? Um, I think it's an exciting time, actually. You know, like it's uh, it's, you know, if you look at the evolution of art and stuff like that, it has a peak and then it comes down and then comes back up again. So we're in a low spot now. And so what's going to blossom out of what's coming now is the exciting part. You know, we've hit rock bottom, so now we only have one way to go, and that's up. And so I think that part of it is is exciting me to see what's going to happen next and how it's all going to develop. And, you know, like, um, is it the musician is going to make their own money? There's not going to be a record company. Everybody's going to be their own kind of, like, you know, podcast or webcast or whatever it is these days, you know. So I think, like, just like we're doing here, like, we couldn't have done this, you know, 20 years ago, you know, like – wasn't wasn't available to us so yeah so what's going to happen in the next 10 years and we don't even know so it's uh, i think it's really exciting you know what what's what can happen you know so i think we'll be making records with robots you know so it's going to be interesting to have five robots in the room and <laughs> you know what's going to come of it uh, like croth work you know or something so I, I i i'm excited about it and and i hope that it comes around that the actual musician or people, you know, actually get paid this time. Are you still making music the same way you used to? Are you still looking for cool locations, cool spaces? Yeah, I've I've got a, I moved into a, a whole other level, and so my new level is Airbnb is my new studio. <laughs> so I just find these amazing locations on Airbnb. They're furnished. They're like, you know, six, seven bedrooms. Everybody's got their room. I bring in a chef. And, you know, like you couldn't go into a studio and put everybody up in these budgets these days. So by doing Airbnb, you know, instead of having to do seven hotel rooms, everybody's staying there. And, you know, like instead of paying, you know, 1500 to $2,500 for a studio, you find a house and you pay a 1000 bucks a day. And you get everybody gets to stay there, and it's like this beautiful location. And so I've just finished one a year ago in Malibu, and so it's like this amazing three-story glass front. It was called Raven's Eye, and I made this record with this guy from Israel called uh, Asaf Avedon, and uh, he's like this. He's like the Bob Dylan of Israel, and so he's got money. He's famous over there. So, um, so I made this record in this amazing modern structure overlooking the ocean and so it was it's and it was cheaper to kind of record there than it would be at the capitol building in hollywood or you know so i think by using the airbnb thing uh as long as the locations didn't disturb anybody else they're they're amazing you know like there's a castle in italy that you can rent for 12 bedrooms on its own plantation or uh, its own land kind of thing and same in jamaica and I have a castle in Jamaica you can record in. and So, yeah, so it just opens up all these kind of like weird different locations you can record and live in. And so record budgets aren't that big these days, so it allows me to spend a week with the band. We all live in, in it, and I'm able to make a record within a week, you know. Are you still carrying around all your equipment? Uh, now my equipment is small. Like when I made Tom Waits' uh, Real Gone record, I showed up with the 24 foot truck and it was filled with couches and rugs and Moroccan tents and all this and I set it up and it was like this you know crazy palace 
But now I just find places that got cool furniture and bearskin rugs and, you know, like it's cool to like rent a cottage here in Canada. You find these beautiful places on a lake. It's secluded. You know, you're up there and you can go swimming, fishing. It's like it's, it's I've even done them in the winter. Um, so our family has a my sister owns a cottage uh, in Halliburton. So I go up there to make records and I made a record for this. These girls called the Whalen Jennies. And so, you know, I didn't think much of it. And, you know, we made this record and suddenly she wins a Juno and I win producer of the year. And, you know, <laughs> like, it's like, wow. And and then these other girls come to make a record from Denmark and we huddle up at the cottage and we I make their record there and their record goes to number one in Denmark. And like, wow. And I'm like a big producer over there now and all this stuff. So it's amazing. And I did Ian Thornley's uh, solo record there. And you know his record went to number one uh, in in on kind of like uh, this kind of chart uh, alternative chart or whatever. So it's it's amazing that you know the cottages are cranking out you know hit records. All the way back when you got into this business was because of a motorcycle accident. But you still I don't know if you still but y- y- throughout your book you've got this love affair with 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 bikes. Yeah. So uh, I have, yeah, I have a big fascination with motorcycles and and now like I you know I used to ride a lot of Harleys I've you know I had like a huge collection of Harleys for a while and then I you know got rid of them and I bought all new Harleys and <laughs> found out that I don't like new Harleys I like old Harleys and I like to work on my bikes and I like to build bikes and it's a bit of a uh, a hobby a passion so and so now um I kind of back to where I started with British bikes and so with my Norton Add triumphs, and so now um, I have a bike. It's called a uh, Vincent, and so uh, it's kind of 1948 Vincent Rapide. It's called, and so this bike was legendary in its time. That it broke the world speed record in 1948, and it did 150 miles an hour and broke the speed record there in uh, Utah, and so uh, it held the record till 1971. So this was like a legendary machine, and. It's well, you know, made, and it's like it's like it's a p- piece of art. It's like incredible. So, I actually ended up getting one. So that's my prize. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I've got my favorite bike, and I just built a bike for my daughter because both my daughters like to ride. And so uh, I built a 1969 Triumph uh, 500 Tiger for her. And so she likes to come up, and we go for beautiful rides out by the cottage. And and it's just you know, it's nice to see it come full circle. You know, now I'm riding with my kids. <laughs> and it feels great. That is awesome. Is there an artist band that you would love to work with that you haven't yet? Um, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I think um, uh, maybe it would be. Um, uh, who would it be? Some bands make me jealous, and so as like, oh, I wish I could work with them, but uh, but then you know, like sometimes afterwards, I think, well, that was just a fad, so I'm glad I didn't work with them, and uh, <laughs> so it, 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 it's 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 crazy that way. But yeah, I I just think um, um, I can't think of anybody right now, right off the top of my head, but uh, maybe the Bad Seeds are kind of. Kind of uh, might be one of them. I've got a crazy guitar, a uh, crazy violin player, and so I think maybe uh, that might be one of them. 
but yeah, I'm. I think a lot of European bands are interesting to me too. So mm-hmm. yeah, so all all different ones, and so yeah, so I'm. I've got this kind of crazy streak now where um, Ar- Americana records are pretty huge right now. So especially in Europe and there. Huh. So so I made this record for this girl called uh, Courtney Marie Andrews uh, just before I got cancer. And so her record, when when uh, she was on every cover of every magazine with this record, and, and then so she ended up winning the Americana Awards in, in England for it. And so now I'm getting a lot of calls from a lot of these British Americana bands. And, and so it's kind of interesting to see the kind of it's come full circle again now and then the you know Americana thing is you know like it kind of happened with um, Mumford and Sons you know they they kind of started the trend and so yeah so I'm seeing a big resurgence of that hopefully you get paid this time yeah not yeah. like not like the was it Mumford and Sons that yeah yeah Mumford and Sons <laughs> I did a I did a test and but yeah but I I I think um, I'm a big fan of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and it's just I think you know my friend Larry plays drums for him and you know, my other friend, uh, Dave Sherman, he plays keyboards for him. And so, you know, maybe just a matter of time, you know. <laughs> Mark, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for a great talk. Yeah, for sure.